Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest is Gianni Giacomelli, Senior Advisor for Innovation at GenPact. Gianni currently serves as Head of Design Innovation at the Collective Intelligence Design Lab at MIT. He served as Chief Innovation Officer at GenPact from 2016 to 2022, when he stepped down to found Supermind.Design, an innovation advisory firm that helps organizations engaged in environmental and social transformation harness the power of AI tools. Gianni joins us on today's program for a sober yet optimistic conversation with Emerge CEO and Head of Research Daniel Fagella on the real-world implications for generative AI, the massive changes it will bring for multiple industries in the near future, and what business leaders need to know to thrive in the new landscape. Today's episode is sponsored by GenPact, and without further ado, here's their conversation. So Gianni, welcome to the podcast. Hey, nice being here. Good to be able to catch up here today. And we have a bunch to unpack about some particular areas that you're close to in AI. You've got your business expertise, your MIT academic experience. I'm sure in both of those environments, you've heard the kind of rumblings or, or nervousness around the potential limitations of generative AI. So much excitement about what it can do. Also, people are worried about hallucinations. The challenge of kind of industrializing this tech involves making the most of those new capabilities, but also just making sure we're buffering against some of its current limits. When you think about how leaders need to understand that, how do you tee that up for them? How do you frame that? I think the uh, most important at this point is to understand that these things are moving fast. And right now you can put these things into production in a marketing workflow very easily. Creative professions, pretty much uh, no problem already today. But when you start doing things that require a yes or no answer, a, a black and white, a zero or one answer, those machines are still in large part untested. They're not like the AI that we used to have so far, and certainly they're not like the technologies that we used to have so far. And, and so people are very reluctant to put some of these things into production, into things that could create defects at a rate that the humans in the loop that we have, we have humans in the loop in plenty of things, you know, think of contact centers. I mean, you you opening a, a bank account or you're underwriting a loan, you, you always have a human in the loop. But when we say, let's use machines of this kind in that environment, we don't quite know what the level of defects that you would have when you put that you know, pedal to the metal. And that's the reason why a bunch of people are doing tons of experiments, tons of prototypes, but they're a little apprehensive about just letting it run wild. So that's where we are. Yeah, well, and that's natural. I mean, I think if they're not exactly sure of its impact, let's keep things kind of in the back office. We saw the big wave of chatbots uh, five, six years ago, that crazy, hypey, mostly useless wave, Gianni, that I'm sure you remember well. Um, and that was an example of people throwing customer facing a bunch of technologies that they really didn't work out the bugs on yet. And of course, hopefully some of them learn from that and they're not doing that with Gen AI. What are the kinds of experiments that are safer to do prototypes with those internal facing projects? You mentioned marketing, maybe it's creating headlines or banner ads or whatever the case may be. I'm sure there's some other examples of those more internally facing kinds of use cases where we can experiment, we can see benefit, and we can kind of work out the kinks of how many people we need in the workflow. What are you seeing people do today? You know, Dan, that's actually a great way to think about it. And, and actually, my answer to you would be, 
I'm not sure if it is internal or external. Let me hmm. just uh, take take an, a specific example. The work that we've done at MIT over the years uh, at the Center for Collective Intelligence basically tells us that it's a little bit of a misconception uh, that we think of these machines as working in isolation. I talked about the human in the loop uh, a moment ago. I think the, the challenge that people have right now, but really the opportunity and the, and the way forward is to design processes where you have a human in the loop and a supervisor by human in the loop, and they supervise the machine. So if you think about contact centers, you already have applicability immediately when you design workflows where these machines act like a suggestion box to the people and through a UI and a UX for the user, so user interface and user experience for the user, which in this case could be the contact center agent. That person could be client facing, can be external facing, but it's still a, I would say a boundary or, or a filtering mechanism or a quality control really that keeps the machine in a place where the machine is going to make fewer mistakes. And that's already, you can already go with that today. I mean, that's, a, that's already a, a possibility today. So it's not internal versus external. What you really want to do though, is to create a a design of a process where somebody's controlling this machine when you think that the answer is binary. There's a good answer or a bad answer. You still need to have a lot of human expertise applied to it, but that doesn't mean that you need to have humans who are super expensive or super hard to find, etc. You can actually design a user experience for that user, for that in internal user, that makes it easy to control what the machine is saying. Okay, so, so your distinction here is when it comes to these safer testbed initial use cases of Gen AI, we don't necessarily need to think about is it internal facing again to our own team or external facing to our customer. It's more of is there a hard yes or hard no, like a clearly right, clearly wrong answer, and do we have enough kind of, I guess, human bandwidth to sit there as the green light, red light at the end of the process to make sure that they put their spin on it before it actually pumps out and goes live. Is that for you, sort of a, a better rule of thumb for the creation of these pilots? It is a better rule of thumb. And actually, I, I somewhat, um, you know, obviously because of my, uh, my past, pilots are great, but we need to have a path to operationalization at scale. And so I wouldn't want to do anything where the human in the loop is not scalable in the future. We need to already design for scalability. And to be honest, we actually have uh, opportunities. We have learned in the past how to do that, but probably we'll cover it. Yeah, well, I, I'd love to touch on that briefly. I mean, this first question is all about kind of industrializing this technology, making it something real. I think you've certainly seen up close and personal the, the pilot purgatory of AI over the last eight years or so. I mean, we've been running this show now for 10. And so this has been famously the case. And, and you know, the, the estimates of only 20% of AI making it into deployment or so, I think we're, up until very recently, I think we're overly confident, to be frank. So there is a real challenge here, but now there's also an opportunity to learn from that past experience and, and go beyond pilots into a real plan for something to make its way into production. Because it's the focus of our question one, I'd love to get your thoughts on how to think of that scalability off the cuff. You just mentioned, and I'd love to start here because you, you highlighted something really important, thinking about the human in the loop in a scalable way. In other words, let's not put a human in in a way where we couldn't do that same thing 20 or 100 times in, in order to scale this at kind of an enterprise scale. Talk to us about what leaders need to understand here. I think there are two concepts that are really important. One is that machines at some point will be able to do a lot of what I'm talking about now by themselves. But it's like the kid, right? They need to start walking and the first time they walk, you will hold their hand. 
And the same is there with machines. So how do we hold their hand like a million times a day? And the way you do it is actually by learning from things that we've done in the last 100 years. And there's something called the scientific process management. It started with Taylor, Fordism, and then you had things like Lean, Six Sigma, TQM. In those disciplines, basically have a lot of the answer right there. And the most important answer is to say, you're looking at the machine alone, you're looking at the wrong place. You actually need to think about an entire operating stack. And the operating stack has people, has the processes that harness those people, and has the machine that support those processes that harness those people. This sounds like a bit of a philosophical thing. It is not, because when you look at, for example, lean management, right, which in the 50s completely changed how we did production at scale. You know the problem that we had then at the time? We didn't have AI, but we had people who made plenty of mistakes. And they made mistakes in more ways than one. We could never actually train them well enough so that they would stop making mistakes. Well, guess what? You have a similar situation now. You have machines that make mistakes. They don't quite know how they make mistakes. So we've been there before. And the way we solve for that is to create a, an exoskeleton around those machines so that the people and the processes scale. So things like, for example, making sure that the inputs to the machines are simple enough that the machine has lower leeways for making mistakes. Or the downstream from the machine can be parsed out to numerous people and triage so that people who are more cost-effective can actually look at the machine's output if the machine's output is likely to be right. So there are multiple ways to keep the cost of the entire operation down. But the, the problem that we have, and I'll, I'll stop there, is very often these prototypes are built by an IT department that is looking at the model's quality and the model's defect rate, whereas one should already include a cross-sectional group of people can think process and people, which, by the way, includes people's training, for example. Those are not the complexion of the prototypes that we do these days is typically run by a technology-only group and until it's too late. Uh, you really need to try to solve the problem with those three legs of the stool instead of only with the technology side of it. Yeah, I mean, we've... Lord, it's it's been a focus since the beginning of the show here, but AI is a team sport. You know, if you don't have leadership on what the real business mandate and the metrics are we need to move here and, and what the strategic thrust of the company is, if you don't have SMEs chipping in about what the real process looks like on the ground and, and how we improve it, and if you don't have the tech folks who are telling us, realistically, is this secure? Do we have the data for it, et cetera? You know, to your point, if we're missing legs of the stool, we're in a lot of trouble. And and running a pilot without those, I get from your vantage point, not productive. The thing I'll put an end cap on, I just want to make sure I'm tightening this up for the audience in a way that that they'll they'll take home. But I'd love your your points. Is you're making this analogy to back in the the sort of Henry Ford days of really thinking about the process in totality. We talk all the time in, in past episodes. I know you've listened to a few about what juncture of the workflow we're influencing. Because you and I both know, Gianni, a lot of the headlines are going to say, AI will transform how you do email marketing. But it, it doesn't. It affects one part of that workflow of man and machine to your thinking. So what you're advising, if I'm putting this correctly, get the multiple stakeholders that need to be there to think about real adoption in the room to think about how we get started. Because this is not a tech test. This is a business value test. Secondly, you're saying, 
really map out where is the man and machine, where's the machine become kind of the exoskeleton, if you will, to sort of augmenting this process specifically. And is that something that will scale? Is is that something that we think we actually want to have as sort of the future of our department or the future of, of this particular workflow? Am I nutshelling that correctly? Anything you want to add there? There's one thing I'd like to, I love your characterization. I would actually also say that in order for those groups, cross-sectional groups to come together and do real work, they need to be able to speak a little bit of each other's jargon. The problem is very often those folks are so siloed into their own practices, they, they really miss the ability to communicate effectively across. And training those folks so that they design things jointly is one of the things that we really need to do as leaders. Uh, absolutely. I wish I could tell you that enterprises did that automatically, Gianni. Uh, my experience is that they don't. But I think that one of the, the big ROI of early AI projects is if you can have a little bit of a better osmosis between those three parties by the end of an AI project, that alone should be seen as a kind of ROI because that stickiness and interconnectedness is is really going to be what predicates future success. We often see services and kind of consulting partners being the ones that are fostering and let's call it catalyzing that three-way convo. And my guess is that you guys see a lot of that in your work. Not everybody's doing that on their own. So we'll talk a little bit about, you know, naturally we're moving into influencing workflows. A lot of the people in the enterprise are going to be wondering, great, what's that mean for my work? So the revolution in the workforce is, is a big deal here. We've got company leadership that's thinking about what should my underwriting department look like? What should my drug development workflows look like? What will my P&L of the future look like? What products are going to be a bigger or a smaller percentage of sort of my revenue as technology really changes things? And of course, team members are going to wonder, what's this mean for my work? That could be, uh, am I going to have a job next week? It could also mean, what does my career look like over a couple years as this technology progresses and evolves? Neither you nor I have a crystal ball, but you're seeing these conversations roll out. How should leaders sort of play a role in making a smooth transition that's that's as good as it can be for workers and really also positions the company in a strategic way. What's the best way to think about that? Yeah, so let me preface. First of all, this is a real problem. I think we made so much noise with this uh, uh, new generation of AI that uh, everybody and their brothers heard about it. And we actually don't have the technical solutions that can plug and play today. So the, 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 we're kind of in a, it, it, the opposite of a Goldilocks, right? We were in a situation where we scared a lot of people off but we really don't have the ability to pick up those workflows tomorrow if people riot. And so we need to be very careful with spending enough time and designing guidance for people at all levels. The first thing I would would say uh, to be clear is that the guidance we heard in the past, recent past actually, about what machines do well and what humans do well, you you probably heard, you know, humans are creative and they do empathy and machines don't. That, that isn't true. That actually isn't true anymore. I, I recommend everyone uh, looks at a couple of studies that came out recently. One was about the assessment of humans when they receive communications from their doctors and their nurses. And those communications come in a form of, say, a portal or some email. The person, the human, the patient, doesn't know if the person on the other side is a human or, or a machine. Guess what? They actually like machines' answers better. So when you talk about empathy, we should be really careful about the fact that a good human on a good day is probably still better than a machine in interpreting empathy, in doing the bedside manner. But most doctors, most nurses, which is, by the way, tantamount to say most professionals every day, they have so much on their plate that, you know, what you get on the other side is 
actually worse than a machine. So that's the first point, right? Don't, let's not rest on our lower, laurels and think that humans can do empathy better. That, that isn't true anymore. Second thing is creativity. You know, we say creativity, humans are very creative. Well, there's been quite a few experiments, even in 2023, and this is the worst AI that we will ever have. Even in 2023, there's some types of creative tasks, like, for example, do me a new design for a shoe that has this market segment. This thing already performs better than master students, right, at, uh, at good universities. So there's no sacred ground anymore. And if there was ever one, to be honest, and the, the kind of the waterline is, is moving up. So we need to be very, very careful with generalization. I would also say that most people think in terms of skills and the types of skills that humans should still retain for a while. And I would agree, there's things like uh, complex problem solving, the ability to bring together stakeholders in a way that you can actually solve problems. You know, a lot of problems cannot be just solved by machine on a workflow. So all that kind of stuff is very relevant and will still be very relevant. Fluid collaboration workflows, right? Just bringing together a company to solve a problem. All of that, I think, will remain human for some time. I still think, though, that we hear a lot about that. And I still think it's a lazy answer. And I think the, the reason why it's a lazy answer is that Whoever is hearing this, they probably have, I mean, I, I work in a company that has 120,000 people. That doesn't get me anywhere. That kind of thinking doesn't get me anywhere in terms of providing guidance to my workforce. What we need to do is a deep analytical job. That is really a workforce planning job where we're going to take all the types of jobs that we have, decompose them in tasks, into tasks. And then we're going to look at those tasks individually and say, well, this is going to be taken by a machine tomorrow, after tomorrow, next year or something. And then you have like a stock of skills that will stay relevant and important in the company in the future. And you need to work on keeping those and keeping humans relevant on those. Everything that will be taken over by machines, you have two choices. Either you do like some companies do, just kind of close your eyes and wait until it's late, or you actually get people away from harm's way and you guide them towards redefining their job scope in a way that they are going to stay away from where the machine will do the cut and not them anymore and train them, which is the last thing that I'll uh, mention, train them in a very dynamic way. Most learning and development infrastructures in companies were never made for this kind of environment. You need to have a lot more agility and you have a lot more the need for people to reskill continuously. You know, this is not good enough that you go to a training camp every you know, year for two weeks. That isn't that world anymore. And so all these infrastructures will need to change. Otherwise, we'll do a disservice to our people. So there's a bunch to unpack here that I think is really important. I, I like that you're killing some, uh, uh, some sacred lambs, so to speak. So this idea of only humans can be empathetic, only humans can be... I remember when AI would never win it go, so to speak. So there's these nevers are not things we want to hold on to. And I, I like this idea of not not letting people lean on generalizations because we are breaking through a good number of them. There's two points, and then I'm going to drill down into them that, that are really sticking out to me. One of them is this idea of deeply analyzing workflows, departments, jobs, and sort of where AI might in, impact them, and, and having a map of sort of where those skills are going to have to be tilted. And then secondly, really building a kind of continuous learning plan for our different team members to make sure that they can stay ahead of the wave here. 
if we just talk about that first part of kind of doing this analysis, th this clearly requires some some lifting. And, and, and to be frank, it also involves a little bit of crystal ball because I don't know if, if you, Gianni, if, if you did, I, I assume you're a very wealthy man in the betting markets, knew that at this wave of LLMs would be naturally the next big leap, right? We had no idea. We don't know when the next one is coming. So we can only predict as well as we can predict. But to build that out, to map out how our underwriting department or our call center or our billing department, whatever it is, is going to function in the future, what would that require? What kind of analysis goes into this? Well, I think uh, it, you need to have a template and then you push it down into the organization. I think most people, most uh, leaders of departments will be able to say, out of these 10 archetypes, these three will be taken over by machines. How much of that do you have in each of the jobs that your people do? So think of the following. We were talking about the contact center before, remember? Um, writing emails to clients isn't going to be a great skill going forward. I mean, if you think about what a bunch of what these contact center people do these days, they, they take templates, they, they assemble things, and they write an email back. Now you can do that a lot faster. What is more important there? is really the critical thinking, is really the uh, looking around the corners that the machine might not have looked at, and really trying to interpret what the need of the client is, which the machine, by the way, sometimes misses the nuances of. So you can go in into a, a department and say, go and map this, the, the things that the machines will take out, whatever is left, in this case, critical thinking, right? Second order, second level of reasoning. Those are the things that you really want to impress into your people, number one. Number two, by the way, this is not just about training. I mean, I want to be super clear about what we are going into. This is about career progression. Folks who cannot be trained to take that level up will not be strategic in the workforce in the future. So this is the reason why I'm talking about workforce planning as a whole and not just a training thing. But I, I think it's super possible to provide archetypes and then get the, the divisional leads and, and the functional leads to take the lead and say, well, I think I have a bunch of these things in the house that I need to develop, and I'll, I'll take the lead and, and take my people through that through the process, which, by the way, requires time. It does. I, before we move on from this point, I, I really appreciate your frankness. For a decade of running this business, I'm very used to vendors saying, AI will never replace people, it'll only augment people, and kind of doing a happy song and dance, which for the most part has been true, but clearly is far too black and white. It sounds like you're being quite frank about the fact that there are real considerations around folks who are, who are unable to sort of step into those archetypes that are really going to be relevant as some of these things become completely automatable. I want to make sure we define archetypes. I, I like your word. Mm. I thought about archetypes when you said it as, okay, uh, you know, an, an archetype is something different than a workflow. Is is, is an archetype like a a type of role? You know, a, a person who does this specific job in analytics, we call that an archetype. Or, or I, I want to know how you conceptualize it because I feel like there's a very particular one here. So let's use the example of the con contact interaction uh, that we just talked about before. Right. So an archetype is communicate concise and effective communication with clients. Right. So how much of that do you have in there? And the point actually is not about automating that. The point is, you're not going to be replaced by a machine tomorrow that does that for you. So there's an inbound query, you know, I have this policy, I don't think I have been paid uh, enough by the insurance, uh, you guys are ripping me off, what do you think? There are a couple of things in there. 
First, is that person right or not? I can ask the machine, but I probably need to do some forensics on what really happened. Machines right now are not great at asking questions. So one of the things that humans should do is say, did I get you right? Did you... The example of the doctor before is an interesting one. If you talk to doctors, one of the things that they will tell you is the reason why we likely are going to still stick around for some time is a lot of our job is to ask questions, is to really try to get what the person is experiencing. So some of that is part of the communication, but most people spend time in the writing of the email back. And the point is that I'm not making, and this is an important, thanks for bringing it out, is that the machine will just write that email. The machine will probably give you raw materials that you will eyeball before they go out. So you're not going to be replaced by a machine. You will be replaced by your coworker who has more of that questioning, forensic, critical thinking skills and couldn't write emails in his life or her life. And now, oh boy, I mean, the guy can write emails, but it has also those other skills you're out of business if you're not able to follow that thing. You, you see what I'm saying, right? When we actually characterize in this thing as a machine versus human, it's a human who can use the new machines versus humans who cannot use the new machines. Absolutely. I mean, the, there's a trope of sort of people are not going to be replaced by AI, but by people who are using AI. And, and I think a fluent ability to use it makes sense. Your idea of archetypes is sort of defining what are these types of skills that we really just think we need to start downplaying because AI is going to be getting better and better? And what are the skills we need to level up? And to your point, some of that questioning, going deeper, getting abstract knowledge that's not just in the chat database. I need to go refer to the CRM. I need to refer to the policy docs. I need to refer to such and such. Maybe AI will help with all that searching, but connecting that context and really making sure the right email goes out uh, will be where the human mind sort of serves more value. So hopefully this idea of mapping will be useful for the audience. And I appreciate you clarifying at the end sort of how you see those two working together. I want to get into sort of some of the fun upside around creativity because this ties into some of your research down the road near me here in Massachusetts, uh, even though I'm catching you from across the pond today. Some of your work in sort of the idea collider involves everything from climate to very healthcare and various and sundry other fields opening up new ideas for kind of connecting ideas across industries. When you think about where Gen AI can unlock creative power, what are some of the capabilities that you want to highlight, things that are that are worthwhile for leaders to know about? I'd actually like to state up front that we're not talking about the things that people already know. So if you think about marketing or advertising agency creativity, a lot of people already know about that. We've been knowing for some time that machines can really augment us. Where I'm going with this is the work that we've done at MIT, uh, at the Center for Collective Intelligence. We we pulled together something that's called the Ideator. So if folks are interested, they can check it out. We actually try to go one level beyond, which is basically to say the way machines have been trained can give you a really interesting palette of options, but ultimately the human will need to choose. The chances that those options may be a little make kind of average middle of the road are pretty high unless you prompt the machine the right way or unless you constrain the machine, it's actually a technical term, by thinking into very specific frameworks. And I'll give you an example. The, the work that we've done at MIT is basically uh, around um, how do we build organizations that don't just rely on the normal hierarchical organizational structures. How do we use, for example, more community-based things? The, the obvious uh, image that comes to mind is Wikipedia versus Encyclopedia Britannica, right? I mean, it's the community-based thing that became the encyclopedia to the world. 
Most people wouldn't have thought of that. They would have thought, oh, you know, we can do a better web-based mobile, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. So how do you force machines to go down that path? How do you force machines to ask themselves questions? And this is not just about telling them, I want to have a better encyclopedia. This is about telling machines, I want you to think of ways of organizing that leverage the power of communities that use these type of technologies that cost very little to run, that are prone to people playing politics and you need to control for that, and really combine all those inputs in ways that machines need to force themselves to give you an answer that is not an out-of-the-box, average, empty-calorie answer. And it's actually quite surprising then, maybe it's not surprising in a way, but if you force them, machines have a lot in their belly because we train them with a lot of the natural experiments that we run in the world. So they have a lot more to offer if you really poke them and force them to go out of their standard ways of answering the questions. Yeah, let's let's get into that. I like the idea of empty calorie answer. Never heard it. Uh, I'm probably going to say that again in the future, and I will be sure to quote you, Gianni. So that's a that's a fun one. I think that is sometimes the complaint with LLMs is that you know we're we're getting. We're getting the mush version of sort of everything that's been published online, worded in kind of a simple and professional way. Let's call that the empty calorie answer. Uh, but clearly it was trained on everything in the internet, including very interesting ideas, including ideas from very divergent fields, including some of the most brilliant minds alive today, or, you know, as far back as Plutarch and, you know, Empedocles or something like that. So we, 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 can, we can scour the world's worth of ideas. What does it look like to go those couple levels deeper to find those breakthroughs about how we could transform a business process or really uh, radically find a better way to get to a result? I think people talk about prompt engineering as being sure this weird newbie skill, but what do you see as sort of the keys to getting to those creative insights? Dan, at the end of the day, I think it's all about workflows. If you talk to creatives, you to talk to innovators, they, they will tell you that they have a flow of work that they go through themselves and their teams and their ecosystems. And so it's about building a process. And the process always starts by falling in love with the problem before you fall in love with the solution. Machines are really good at that. Whenever you run, and I've done it for all my sins many, many times in my career, whenever you do a, an exercise of innovation with teams, people want to go to solutions. They, when you do a workshop that is more than half a day on exploring the problem, people get bored and say, can I go back and do some real work? And the problem is, very often, the reason why people cannot find real good solutions is that they don't explore and explode the problem uh, well enough. Machines have no problem with that. You can ask them to disassemble the problem in multiple ways. And what's super important is you can tell them to use frameworks, very different frameworks, to disassemble a problem. This is beautiful because I think there's a subtle elegance in this. Let's take an example, Christensen's innovator's dilemma, right? Most people know that. If you tell a machine, I have this business problem, tell me how to redo my strategy, it will give you some empty calorie answer. If you tell the machine, hold on, I want you to apply five frameworks. One of them is Christensen's. Another one can be Blue Ocean. Can, there's many of them. The machine knows enough because there's been enough text that has been fed to the machine. Machine that cannot do symbolic reasoning, can do semantic reasoning, can only think about the worst kind of prediction of the next word. But because there's been so much written about those frameworks, it will do 
very often astonishingly good jobs, better jobs than actually the average person you'd find in looking at the problem and filtering the problem through that framework. Once you've done that, you'll actually discover a bunch of things that you hadn't thought of before. So I would actually start from there. Just use machines to fall in love with the problem until you're blue in the face. The machine doesn't go blue in the face. You know, that's the beauty of that. And once you've done that, you've done half of the battle. The other half of the battle is recombine things like crazy. The most successful product of all times in the history of man mankind is what, Ben? Most successful product? Of all time, the are you talking about the iPhone or the smartphone in general? Well, the iPhone is two thirds of the value of Apple, which is the most valuable company ever. It's a case study on recombination of things. They took material science for the Gorilla Glass. They took AI, so you don't need a keyboard. You remember the BlackBerry, Blackberry keyboard? You don't need a keyboard. Mm -hmm. This folks said. No, I have AI. It will figure out my, what my crocodile fingers really meant when they hit the screen that way. It was a masterpiece on recombination of ideas. Machines are really good at recombining ideas. There's actually research very recently from MIT. Somebody took material science um, literature, fed into a machine, and then asked the machine, what do you think that I could figure out if you applied biology frameworks to this? Just to combine ideas from biology with this stuff from material frameworks. And the machine, lo and behold, came up with a bunch of things. Uh, this guy was actually one of the uh, professors at MIT, material science. I mean, knows a few things about material science, but basically they'd never seen it before. And so it is beautiful to think how you can force machines to recombine ideas from different fields in a way that we never done it before. And you've seen recently, you know, deep, deep mind, you know, the millions of crystals that never been uh, uh, discovered before. And they just discovered with that model, right? We just scaled up recombination of things. Those are the things that I think should make us feel every day we wake up like we could make the world so much better if we let machines lose in those workflows. If you do those workflows, so again, falling in love with the problem, then recombination of different ideas, my, my bet, and we can talk again at the end of 2024, we will discover a ton of stuff in 2024 that we didn't expect. I, I would not bet against you there. I mean, I've said a thousand times that if we froze AI technology today, in other words, uh, Gianni, no more developments, no more breakthroughs, no new models, nothing. If we froze it and we we actually make use of it in the enterprise or in consumer tech, we're literally living on a different planet as it is. We, we, we just haven't even begun scratching the surface of generative entertainment or learning materials and the future of human relationships when you talked about empathy. I mean, there's all kinds of worlds there, brother. To, to your point, some of this comes from the combination of ideas. So I think the, the point I'm going to try to nutshell, and I want to make sure I'm getting this right, but I like that you're helping people to think beyond just how can I get a little bit of efficiency over here? It's more of, man, let's let's fall in love with our biggest problems and come up with brilliant, amazing new answers. Let's apply the best insights from another field and try a 
bunch of different kinds of prompts to be able to tease out what's new and what's exciting. And I would agree with you. I think the best scientists with the most brilliant ideas in the future are all going to be ones that are paired up with AI, cycling through the possibility space of ideas faster than any human ever could. And similarly, you've brought up the point of using frameworks. You know, I'm even thinking in my own business, huh? If I take Jim Collins' good to great idea about technology adoption and apply it to audio media business or market research company that does these things, what would it look like, you know, and just see what kind of fun ideas spin up? Is that is that the proper nutshelling of what you're saying? I want to make sure people can really make this actionable for themselves. That's fantastic. And in there, then you see the value of a human, right? You decide if you like that framework or the other one. You don't let the machine decide. You know, I'll give you the last nugget because I it, it made my heart swell the other day. You, you were talking about Go, right? You, it, and, and we know the story, right? Machines are better at Go than humans are. You know what happened in the 50 years, I think it's about 50 years that they measured the quality of Go playing before AI got brought in. The field got professionalized, so the, 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 the variance became lower, but the quality, the average quality of playing at professional level of Go was flat. Then the machines came, right? So this is surprising already. I mean, 50 years, we weren't better than the people in the 50s that played Go, in average, right? Pro, pro, pro players. Not you and I, right? I don't know about you, but I know the first thing about Go. What happened then? Machines got in and trounced everyone, right? So end of the story. No. What happened to the human players? They got better since. We got humans got better at playing Go since the machines start trouncing us. I want to leave you with this. I think there's something profoundly strong in just go with the flow, do what the human does, get augmented by a machine, maybe go somewhere else. It doesn't mean that the machines make you stupider. Right? The Go players, the pro Go players, gotten remarkably better since the machines started saying, well, you know, you can do all those sorts of things. And then the human creativity filled that void. I think there's something profoundly human and profoundly aspirational in, in that example. I like it. I mean, I think everybody listening in is thinking about something beyond Go right now, Gianni, whether it be, you know, a workflow in their business, etc. But I, I like that as a tee up example and as a an opener of the possibility space, which I'm completely in agreement with you. I will tell you right now, number one, I hope we get to talk at the end of next year. And number two, I would not bet against you, sir. This has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much, Gianni. Thank you. And don't forget to check out our other interviews with senior leadership of GenPact on important topics surrounding AI, especially generative AI in 2024. Those episodes include our January 15th episode with Harsh Carr titled Scaling Generative AI in the Enterprise. You can also check out our interview with Vice President and Global Leader of AIML Services at Genpact, Srikanth Menon. That episode is titled Creativity and Constraints, a Framework for Responsible Generative AI. That episode premiered February 5th, 2024. Also for today's episode, don't forget to check out the associated white paper from GenPact with the same title as today's program or relatively same title. The white paper is titled Break Boundaries with Generative AI and RP. 
episode is actually titled Breaking Boundaries with Generative AI. You can find that white paper in a link in the Libsyn description for today's show. If you're using Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also, and we've tested this, do a quick Google search for that white paper title, Break Boundaries with Generative AI. If you just include GenPact in that search, it should come up linked in the posts promoting today's episode on Twitter and LinkedIn through our eMERGE accounts on both social media platforms. There are also really, really in-depth white papers full of actionable insights for leaders across sectors for all three episodes we've featured in this series for GenPact that we're very, very proud of. And you can check out those white papers when you check out those episodes. At the end of the episode, I give a similar explanation for where to find them. On behalf of our CEO and head of research, Daniel Fagella, as well as the rest of the team here at Emerge Technology Research, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI in Business podcast. <laughs>